a song that Mark just played on the guitar a moment ago. It's called I'd Rather Have Jesus. Many of us are familiar with it. You may not be familiar with the story behind the song. George Beverly Shea, who for decades was Billy Graham primetime singer, anytime before Billy Graham presented the gospel, George Beverly Shea would sing. He was going to go on a contract uh, with the Grand Ole Opry and was going to be paid quite a bit of money. And he was determining to go into that or to go into ministry. And his mother knew that he would come home from work every day. He lived with her at the time. He knew she would, he would come home from work every day and play the piano. And so she wrote the words to that song we just heard. It was a poem for her. I'd rather have Jesus, silver or gold. I'd rather be his and have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus in houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a vast domain. George Beverly Shea came home, saw those words on the piano, put it to song, and he went into the ministry and he followed the Lord um, ever till the day that he died. Pays to follow Christ. You won't regret that. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 13. Jesus has just heard of the death of John the Baptist, as Matthew records. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and raking the five loaves, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Really only two things you need in this life, two things that human beings have for thousands of years 
fought over. Two things that are not always easy to achieve, but two things that are absolutely necessary for your survival. You need someone to provide for you, and you need someone to protect you. And a lot of times we look to people or to things in order for that to happen. Maybe we try to fill up our bank account. Maybe we depend on this other person that if I'm just going through life with them, I'll, I'll be okay. Or, or maybe we try to protect ourselves by, by arming ourselves or by building up our, our military might or trying to figure out a way to, to secure our homes. But really what we find out is the only protection and the only provision that you have in this life comes from the Lord. But when you understand that the only protection and provision in this life comes from the Lord, and when you realize the greatness of His power, you'll respond just like the disciples did. You'll worship Him, and you'll realize that when Jesus is all you have, Jesus is all you need. Jesus has just been rejected by His hometown. He's received news of the death of His cousin, John the Baptist, at the hands of Herod. And we see Jesus filling this role of provider. Who is this who can provide food for the multitudes? These crowds have followed him around. There's not a local Walmart for them to go to. There's not a fast food restaurant that they can raid with all of their buses. There's 5,000 men here, but this doesn't even account for the women and the children. They've come to hear from Jesus, and Jesus says to them that they will be provided for. He's given them the Sermon on the Mount just a, a few months beforehand, And the disciples say, Lord, you need to send these people away because if you don't send these people away, we are not going to be able to feed them. This is the only miracle from the ministry of Christ, apart from the resurrection, recorded in all four gospel stories. You remember what had happened to the children of Israel when they were out of Egypt, going into the promised land, they were in the wilderness, and there was no food for them, and God provided manna from heaven for them to have just came straight out of the sky. Jesus had earlier told these same people not to worry about food and not to worry about money. The disciples had heard this message more than anyone, and yet what are they doing? Worrying about food and worrying about money. They come to him and they say, Lord, we don't have any money. We got five loaves, we got two fish. You need to send these people away. Jesus said, bring it to me. Hadn't he told them as much? Hadn't he said, take no thought for your life, what you will eat, what you will wear, how much you have, because your heavenly Father has need over all of those things? And hasn't he told you just as much? If you ask for bread, will he give you a stone? If you ask for fish, will you be given a snake? They they had witnessed on Simon Peter's boat not long before that this extraordinary catch of fish when Jesus had just said, cast out your net to the other side. Had they ever really stopped to consider that Jesus might be able to provide for their needs? You can kind of hear their responses, can't you? We've never done it that way before. <laughs> They're in a Baptist church. They call a special called business feed and say, we've got to figure something out. They look around and wonder what it is to do They just forget to ask Jesus. Have you ever finished a conversation or tried to do as much as you can do and ended it with, well, now all we can do is pray? I wonder if we should start with that instead of of using it as a last resort. 
The disciples are in this same kind of predicament. They, they fail to trust in God's provision. You know, maybe they felt rushed. Goodness, they must have been busy trying to provide for all of these people. Maybe they felt pressure to satisfy the needs of the crowd. I've got to meet these expectations. But whatever the need and whatever the issue, that they failed to trust in God's provision and they failed to see Jesus who had said earlier that He is the bread of life. He that comes to Me will never hunger. He who believes on Me will never thirst. They had looked for physical sustenance and forgot about spiritual sustenance. Forget about what we can do through Christ. And Jesus takes that bread and He doesn't just bless the bread or the food. He blesses the God who gave the food. He says, I thank You, Father, for providing this. And these disciples go around and they wait on these tables. Imagine that. They serve these people. This is a prediction that had been fulfilled by Mary earlier when she had said of her son that the hungry would be fulfilled. Jesus describes that as ultimately salvation, as the, the filling of the hungry. God being the very source of the meal. So many times we worship the creature rather than the creator, the bread rather than the baker, the stars rather than the maker of the stars, the water rather than the one who parts the sea. We forget. We wonder. And we lose sight that the only one who can provide for our needs is Jesus. And notice this, there, there's no repayment demanded, no check necessary, no tip required. It's just God and His mercy. And I want you to see within these stories that it's not so much the amount of faith that you have as who your faith is in that's truly important. This little boy is not mentioned in the particular gospel, but he's mentioned in another gospel. This little boy that goes to hear Jesus, he has five loaves and two small fish. This meal is enough to feed him. That's it. He's probably just a little guy. Some little guys can eat a lot, some can't. But at any rate, he offers what he has to the Lord. And God uses that to feed the multitudes. You know, faith is trusting in God, especially when you can't see the outcome. And even if you know the end result, you still have to trust God through the process because the process is exactly what God is using to prepare you for the end result. You say, I wish I could just get to the other side where God would provide for all my needs. I know that He's going to take care of everything. I wish He'd just see me through. But that process of you depending on Him for food for energy, for income, is exactly what's going to prepare you for what he has waiting for you. George Mueller knew what this was like. He spent most of his life going after those who had been abandoned outside Bristol, England. He started the first modern-day orphanages, had five buildings, housed about 2,000 children, and many times there was no income. He never asked anyone for a dime, never wrote a fundraising letter, never charged for different type of services. Here's what he'd do. He spent his whole life just praying things in. He would pray for hours on end, praying for God to supply. And the story is that one day, the children all gathered downstairs and there was simply no food or no, no meat for them to have on that day. And George Mueller started praying, thanking God for the provision. Sure enough, a, a baker came by and said, I've got some food left over. Would you like this? And then someone carrying milk jugs 
stopped outside the door, said, my cart's broken down, this milk is going to spoil, I'll never get it to where I need it to be in time. Could you use this? Audacious faith. Mountain-moving faith. And Jesus said it's not nearly as important as how much faith you have. If you have faith of a mustard seed, you can move these mountains. It's who your faith is in. Do you trust the one who said he will provide for you? Who said he will never leave you or forsake you? Because it's easy to trust in him when everything's going well. But if you can trust him when there's no food on the table, when there's no money in the bank, when I have no reason to go on, that's when you find out who God is. And notice what they begin to do, what we begin to do in, in doubting the miraculous. You know, years ago, my pastor attended Southern Seminary at a time when the seminary didn't believe that the Word of God was the Word of God. Can you imagine churches banding together, sending their young people to a seminary they've been taught their whole life that the Bible is God's Word and then going there and finding out that's not what it was? In those days, that was exactly what was happening. He was told in his seminary class by one of his professors that in this feeding of the 5,000, Jesus and the disciples actually had some bread hidden over in a cave somewhere, and that's where they got the food to eat. Can you imagine that? He's not the only one that believed that way. Billy Graham's best friend in his college days was a guy by the name of Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton was well-known as a preacher, as a theologian. He had a bright career ahead of him, and he and Billy Graham reached a crossroads. They both started to wonder whether or not the Word of God was the Word of God. There were things in it that they didn't fully understand. And Billy Graham said, I got down on my knees one night and I just determined, God, even if I don't understand this book, I know that you wrote it, and I'm going to believe it. God blessed his ministry. Charles Templeton, though, went the other way. Here's what he says. I started considering the plagues that sweep across parts of the planet and indiscriminately kill, more often than not, painfully, all kinds of people, the ordinary, the decent, and the rotten, and it just became crystal clear to me that it's not possible for an intelligent person to believe that there is a deity who loves. He goes on, when asked what he believes about Jesus, he was the greatest human being who has ever lived, he was a moral genius, his ethical sense was unique, he was the intrinsically wisest person that ever encountered in my life or in my readings, he's the most important thing in my life, I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. He's the most important human being who has ever existed. And if I may put it this way, I miss him having a form of godliness, but denying the power. Here's the thing, when you begin to doubt what is in the Word of God, you will also begin to doubt that he is able to care for you in your everyday life. And don't think that this can't happen to you. Like what Oswald Chambers says in his devotional, beware of worshiping Jesus as the Son of God and professing your faith in Him as the Savior of the world while you blaspheme Him by the complete evidence in your daily life that He is powerless to do anything in and through you. Do people who don't know that you go to church or don't know you outside of these walls, do they know the difference between you and an atheist? Because the main difference between you and an atheist is the Christian is supposedly supposed to pray and depend on the Lord. <laughs> and if you're not doing that, are you denying the power of God? 
Or, or if you're on the other end of this where you're saying, God, I, I trust you in some areas, but there's just some things I got to do on my own. I got to take care of this and I'll do whatever I can and I'll trust you for what I can, but I got this aspect of my life. And you do the same thing. It's really easy to look at these miracles and to be amazed. Man, Jesus fed 5,000 people just by spreading out his arms. Where did all this food come from? Can we start a buffet line? I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. But you know what's just as incredible as that, if not more incredible? That this earth rotates and spins on, his ac- on its axis at supersonic speeds. That we take 23,000 breaths a day, God allowing us to take every single one of them, that our hearts continue to beat, that our minds are able to think, and that God holds this whole universe right in the palm of his hand. That's the incredible thing. It's just as incredible as this miracle. We don't see the ordinary miracles going around. So we see Jesus as the provider, but we also need to see Jesus as the protector. Look at the second story quickly. Jesus walking on the water. Maybe you're familiar with what takes place here. Jesus has sent the disciples off. The Sea of Galilee is a very tempestuous sort of sea. There's always some type of storm coming up. The wind's always blowing at the wrong time. And at this time, Jesus has sent the disciples up. He's gotten away with the Father. And they encounter a storm, and they're having difficulty getting to the other side. And in the middle of the night, in the midst of that storm, they see this figure walking on top of the water. Now, we look at the disciples and say, why didn't they think it was Jesus? I'm telling you, if you and I are in a boat, and I see somebody walking from far away, I'm going to think it's a ghost, too. I don't know where you are in this, but this is where they are. And they say, look, it's a ghost. And Jesus has to cry out to them and said, take heart, it is I be not afraid. And I want you to look at what Peter does here. This is an incredible amount of faith. Peter answers him in verse 28. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus says, come. What incredible faith he displays here. A lot of people get onto Peter. They say, well, he took his eyes off of Jesus and he sank a few minutes later. Yeah. But he's the only disciple who got out of the boat and walked on the water. That's the confidence that he displayed in Jesus. He displays this audacious, mountain-moving faith. He takes God at his word. Then he takes his eyes off of Jesus. Boy, that's our struggle, isn't it? Have you seen God work in your life? Do you know what it's like to experience his power? I say most of us do. But you also know what it's like to take your eyes off of him. To lose sight of what's most important. Peter's struggle is really our struggle. But then he turns around and he cries out, Lord, save me. Not only is that our struggle, that's also our cry. He knows that when he gets to the end of his rope, Jesus is going to be there to hold the other end of it. He knows who Jesus is. He requests something of him. And then Jesus begins to look at Jesus as someone who is able not only to provide, but to protect I think we have this expectation sometimes that faith-filled life will always be victorious. That if you're truly a child of God, you're not supposed to have defeats, you're not supposed to have setbacks. I think the opposite is often true. I think the faith-filled life is often filled with failures. How many people in the biblical storyline experience every aspect of fallen humanity? Sometimes 
The faith-filled life feels like one step forward and two steps backward, if we're honest. But our eyes must always be fixed on Jesus, regardless of our rate of progress. Thousands of kids do this every year at swimming pools, lakes, rivers perhaps. They stand on the edge of the shore, they stand on the edge of the dock or on the edge of the pool. Their dad is down there, and what is dad saying? Jump into this water, and I'll catch you. And what's the kid up there doing? (laughs) Not, not, Not a thousand years. Dad keeps talking to him, kid keeps staring at him, and eventually what happens in most of the cases? Kid takes a plunge. And it's not because they know how to swim. It's because they trust in the protection of their father. That's what God is seeking to do every day of your life. He's not teaching you to swim for yourself. He's teaching you to trust in his love and protection. Whatever it takes to get there is where he is going to go. That's what Jesus does to Peter. That's what he does to to you and me. I don't know if you've seen a documentary. There's a movie that came out about it just recently, but the documentary is called Man on Wire. And it's about what happened in the early 1970s by a guy who tightroped, walked across the New World Trade Centers. It was before they had opened up. He sneaked into the building the, the, the night before, walks up there, shoots a cable line across to the other tower, and at over 1,300 feet high for 45 minutes at 7 o'clock on a Manhattan morning, people look up and they see this guy with his balancing pole walking across back and forth. Now listen, that's one thing. To walk across, if you're five feet off the ground, I think I can handle that. But 1,300 feet? And I don't know if you've been up high, but the wind blows a little bit harder up high. So to keep your balance was a crazy thing. And they said, this guy's insane. It's, it's, it, it, it's kind of ironic. We ought to have a respect for law enforcement. But this guy is going to either end of the towers. And just before law enforcement can grab him, they're afraid to grab him because they don't want to bother the rope. He turns around and goes the other way. So he's playing with them. They're trying to reach for him. And he's going the other way. And finally, they catch him. And they rough him up a little bit. And you look at this guy. And you're like, man, that is an insane thing to do. But I bet you, with everything I've got, that guy probably never felt more alive than crossing back and forth. You know what they say to tightrope walkers? Here's the, the secret to success. It, it's not that you're focusing on the, on the rope. You certainly don't want to look down and look sideways. He, here's the secret to being a successful tightrope walker. I'm told this. I don't know this by experience. They say what you do is you stay focused on the end goal. You stay focused on the insight. Because if you start looking down and looking around, you'll totally miss what you focus on. What you focus on is where you end up. And that's exactly what Jesus says to Peter. He says, Peter, keep your eyes on me. I like what Michael Wilkins says in his commentary uh, on this passage. He says, the difference between growth and failure rests on whether Peter continues to be receptive to God's revelation and will. When he remains open to the things of God, he grows in his personal discipleship and in his leadership. When he does not remain receptive to the things of God, he fails in both. So the difference in your life is whether or not you'll be obedient to what God has already commanded. When Peter does that, no matter what circumstance he faces, God is with him. When he doesn't do that, he falls flat on his face and falls into the water. I want you to see how these disciples respond. When they see all these things taking place, they've seen him feed the 5,000 men and then the women and children, 
They've seen him walk on the water and pull Peter out. You know what they do? They respond in worship to him. Listen to me. When you truly understand who Jesus is and what he's done, you will always, always respond in worship to him. And I want you to notice the key to this entire passage, because honestly, this is the the, the key to your life. If you don't hear anything, hear this. It's a passage that we skipped over while talking through this. The key to the entire ministry of Jesus is found in between this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water when Jesus joins the disciples in the boat. You know what the key to his ministry is? He gets alone with God the Father. That's what he does. Because he knows with all the obstacles he faces, he knows with everything that's coming his way and the opposition that's going to come, he needs the strength of the Father. And if the Son needs the strength of the Father, how much more do you and I need the strength of the Spirit? He gets away and alone with God. I pray that you and I wouldn't just talk about reading our Bible, praying, but that we would really make that our lifeline. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And brothers and sisters, let me just ask you, how can we, how can we go and do the will of God if we don't know what He says? We're not in His Word. And so He says, I have to trust in Jesus as my provider. I have to trust in Him as my protector. Because He has authority over my life. And I have to get alone and hear from him so that I can do what he says. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at barryefields.com.